Welcome to SelfDiscoveryRadio.com, where the discovery of self has put a show away. With a thousand plus archive shows and new shows coming to you every Tuesday, we bring you illuminating people from around the globe. Visit our store for their services and books and enjoy the show. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Dr. Dan, Dan Than Patero. I think I might pronounce that wrong. We're going to be talking about masculinity. Where has it gone? Are we confusing uh, masculinity and a real man with Mr. Macho, a misogynist man? What is the definition of man today? And he says, how can you find a real man in high schools and how can you find a real man on campus? Are young men today getting a mixed message? Are they confused about their own masculinity and how to portray it? So masculinity analysis, Dr. Danthel Patero is a clinical psychologist, a clinical director of Park Ridge Psychology Services in Illinois, and leading author of the book, Desperately Seeking Parents. So what have parents got to do with this schooling? Um, I think most kids are getting their education from social media nowadays. Uh, from movies and uh, maybe uh, parents just because they're so busy are forgetting to actually teach their kids. So let's find out more about the definition of masculinity in today's world and how a young man can be a real man um, in society with all the pressures and everything else that are on them. Welcome to the show, Dr. Botello. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So masculinity um, a lot of people kind of look at it in a totally different way, do, don't they? And There's a lot of you know, misogyny out there, this big machoism, and a lot of people think that's being a real man. But what do you see as being the definition of a real masculine man? Great question. You know, it is culturally sensitive, and it is culturally defined. It is, you know, masculinity and femininity are societal words that we use to describe what we believe are the ideals for man and woman. And it has, of course, changed over time. There are certain objective criteria for masculinity and femininity that I think are common threads throughout history. Um, <clears throat> I would say that masculinity is traditionally uh, and consistently, I would say, productive and protective. It is the more resilient and tough uh, physically of, of the genders. It is you know, the more providing of the genders traditionally, um, and it is the physically um, you know, more intimidating and uh, ability to destroy and build of the genders. Um, I think those are two um, you know, separate things, the ability to destroy and the ability to build and create. But obviously, that doesn't mean at all that femininity it doesn't have some of those characteristics, but the unique and complementary nature of the genders and the sexes is that men tend to have that a bit more and sometimes a lot more than, than femininity. Yeah, you know, when the uh, feminist movement uh, came in, it, it wasn't about a woman becoming a man. And then you start seeing women in high-powered jobs and they're kind of dressing like men and they're becoming like men. And that wasn't the point. The point was looking for equality. If you're capable of doing the job, there should be the same uh, positions open for you, the same salary, um, the same respect. And I think it got, you know, misconstrued. Um, would you say that kind of the same thing happening with males today? Yeah, I, you know, I would even um, 
comfortable a little bit with the original purpose of the feminist movement. You know, I go back to um, you know the 18th century, uh, Betsy Ross and Abigail Adams and others, at least in the States, who were considered some of the original feminists, at least in America. Uh, they were not looking for equality of um, you know a pay or anything like that. They were looking to be considered equal in terms of power, equal in terms of being valued, and I would suggest that they desperately wanted to be valued for their unique and complementary contributions. So where I think things have gone awry uh, with men and women isn't that uh, we can't do the same things, it's that we haven't done a really good job glorifying, praising, being grateful for the unique and complementary contributions of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that men had done a much better job uh, glorifying women and thanking women and appreciating women for their unique and complementary femininity, whether that's child rearing or being in the home or taking care of the home or being a part-time worker, plus all those other things, because women are so good at doing multiple things. I think if, if we had lifted them up in, in our culture, if men had done a better job of that, I don't think we would have necessarily had a feminine movement that became more uh, aggressive and virulent and angry and felt unappreciated. It was also that sense of um, there was no ownership of self. You know, once you were married, you were his property, or you were the father's property. And of course, in some cultures, that's still very much uh, relevant there. and it, I think women have been kind of fighting for the right to, to make their own choices and decide their own fate. Um, but as I said, you can see, though, today a lot with the young men is because there are so many m- more women have stepped into their own empowerment now. Um, the, do you think it's becoming a little confusing, the message for the men? Is it like demasculating them where they feel, well, you know, if I open the door for the woman, is she going to be offended? Or if I treat her with respect as a woman, as a man should, is she going to slap me and saying, I can do it myself? Do you, can, do you see that sure. kind of thing going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell you a quick story. When I was writing my second book uh, called Ladies and Gentlemen that I wrote with Dr. Gina Loudon about the whole concept of what a gentleman is and what a lady is, I did an experiment with my son. We went to two different stores. One was a pretty high socioeconomic status mall in the North Shore of Chicago. Outside, it's, the store was called Nordstrom. And my son held the door open for uh, women for 10 minutes. And not one woman gave him eye contact or said thank you wow. for that. Wow. I was shocked. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked. Then we went to a Starbucks pretty close to our house. Uh, not highfalutin kind of area, but, you know, it's middle socioeconomic status. And almost every woman said thank mm-hmm. you, appreciated it, noticed it, looked at me and said, oh, you're doing a great job and things like that. And it was so interesting to me. My son was confused after this. Yes. He didn't understand why women would have rejected this or ignored him after this. And we, we didn't want to make too much meaning out of it. But we are confused as men. Mm-hmm. What are our expectations? Are we supposed to treat women as if they are delicate flowers who can't do anything and we have to come to their rescue 
you know, the whole machismo thing. Are we supposed to let women do everything on their own because they, they want to be equal? Is that what equal means? I'll tell you, it is a confusing time for men, all men right now, but particularly for millennials and high school uh, young men. I find that in my practice because I see adolescents and adults and I see a lot of men who really have no idea what women want. And when they talk about femininity and they talk about feminism, they get really anxious and they get confused. And I see this look of, oh my, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and it's it's really sad. And, and I, it's sad because I don't have a, a solid answer for them because I do believe that the world is giving them mixed cues many times because there are pockets of women, right? There is no homogeneity in terms of the feminist movement. You have radical feminists, you have the classical feminists, you have women who have no idea what feminism is, <laughs> you have people who, who you, know, squ- you know, subscribe to the, I, w- I just want the strong uh, masculine male who, macho guy uh, to fight and kill the dragon for me. And so men don't know what they're dealing with and they're lost. I think a, a lot of the thing is that the women are lost to what they want too. You know, they do want the, the, the dragon slayer. Um, and they do want that door open for them. But there's a mixed message, I think, coming into the women is like, but if you allow them to do that, you know, you're, they're taking away your femininity. Because I think th- the bleed has happened between the extremists, uh, you know, and the moderate. And uh, um, yes. I, I'm, I'm obviously old fashioned. I'm, um, uh, you know, born in the 50s. So, yes, please open my door. Courtesy goes a hell of a long way for me. Um, you know, and we can split the 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 meal tab. You don't have to pay for it unless you're taking me on a date. Um, yes. You know, if we're just out for lunch, it's not a, a thing that you have to pick up the bill. But I think what we've gotten here, a lot of on both sides of the table, are just simple courtesies and manners. And I think that's something that's been very, very lacking. And where does that come from? Is it is it the parents? Is it the schooling? Is it society? You know, uh, what happened to courtesy? Yeah, well, if courtesy is speech, if it is a form of speech, and if we live in a, a culture where political correctness uh, is is so <clears throat> leading the charge, then we're afraid to speak the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for example, if I hold up hold hold open the door for a woman who is kind of a a rabid uh, feminist. And she says to me, I can hold the door open for myself, thank you very much. And she's going to Starbucks, right? I'm, op- I'm at Starbucks and I open the door. I have several different responses. I could say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pander or to treat you like you're less than, right? And then I'm agreeing with her presuppositions of what I meant. I could, I could ignore altogether. I could smile and walk away. I could say, well, I didn't mean it the way that you intended, and it's really insulting that you would presume that. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could fight like that. Or I could say, yes, you're right. I'm sure you can do things on your own. I find it ironic that you're going to Starbucks. I bet you can make your own coffee, but here you are. <laughs> <laughs> right? so, so the messages are so confusing, and we as men don't want to, most men, Okay, I think the vast majority of men want to uplift women. They want mm-hmm. to serve women, and they want to be served by women. They want a mutually beneficial, a mutually loving relationship where everybody's happy. Okay, the vast majority of men. Of course there are those bozos, 
who are, you know, into the Adonis, uh, you know, syndrome and the, the complex, and they they just want to rule over women. Yes, but I find that to be the the, the, the tiniest minority. Okay, this is my experience. I can't speak, speak for anybody else's experience. But, but those men don't know what women want, and so they're left doing nothing, okay? And women don't know how to read that, and they find that they're not getting uh, approached and they're not being pursued, and so they're lost too. I think you're absolutely right mm-hmm. that women are lost in this culture, and I think sometimes it's not because of what they have communicated, it's what the movement yes. of feminism has communicated without their permission. And some women don't know how to say, okay, this is what feminine, feminism today is telling you. I don't believe that. I do want a man who is uh, courteous, who will hold the door open for me, who will slay the dragon for me, who will offer to pay for dinner, but who will also, in the end, work very hard to appreciate my unique yeah. and complimentary traits as a woman. I believe that that's what women want most. Amen to that. You know, I want to be respected and valued for my contribution to life, for my talents, for for the gifts that I've been given. Um, and but at the same time, you know, I want to be able to walk into a man's arms and feel his strength and feel that love, you know, and that appreciation there that I can count on him, as he can count on me for the strengths that I have. I think what we're forgetting is. A, you know, relationship, communication and partnership. But we have to have that yeah. communication, relationship and partnership with self first before we can bring it into into a, you know, cohesive relationship. And I think so many people are searching for themselves in somebody else's eyes that, you know, we have to do the work ourselves first, don't we? And then bring more or less a whole person to the to the table. Because if we keep looking for someone else to define and refine us, and they're confused of who you are anyway, you know, all we've got is a spiral of confusion going on. Right, absolutely. It's almost like shaking hands. If one of the hands is flimsy and, and can't connect, well, you're not going to have a very good handshake, right? Mm-hmm. And any kind of relationship, yes, you do need to be well-defined and to be able to communicate lovingly but firmly who you are, what you are, what you believe in, what you need and want, in order to get what you need from the other person. I'll tell you a quick story. You know, I've been married for almost 19 years, and I have a great marriage, but we also have our ups and downs, and one of the ups and downs, uh, one of the downs came right when we got married. My wife and I had a very, very short uh, courtship. We were one of the first uh, couples to meet on the Internet, which was, I think, you know, a really fascinating um, stage in the, in the mid-'90s, but we did not spend a lot of time together before we got married, and so we did not learn each other's love language mm. until much later. And so I grew up in a family where touch was the primary mode of affection, right? And we didn't do a lot of words. We did a lot of touch. And so I was used to touching in order to show love and affection. And my wife did not grow up with that. And so that wasn't meaningful to her. And it was almost annoying to her. So when we would go to a movie or something like that, and I'd put my arm around her, I'd touch her leg or whatever, she would not quite recoil, but I could tell that it just wasn't (laughs) meaningful to her. And I felt so insulted because I was giving my best to her. And we didn't communicate in the first couple of years that, hey, that's just not doing it for me. And here's why. And here's what I really want instead. And it took us a while to kind of get going. Luckily, we were patient enough, and we loved each other enough mm-hmm. to wait for that state. And we got there. But, boy, if, if, if men and women can't do a good job of saying, hey, what I really need, the end result is that I need to be appreciated for my unique and complementary yes. traits. 
and here's what I believe my unique and complementary traits are, and here's what yours are, then we can kind of create a Venn diagram where we can meet in the middle and appreciate each other and fuel each other and fill each other, whether you call it ego or psyche or, or love tank, whatever you want to call it, that's what we're all looking for. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah I, you're absolutely right that we have to know what our tank is and what our unique and complementary traits are so that we can get them fulfilled. This, the one thing I've noticed in society is, you know, inside a woman is a little girl just waiting to be loved, and inside a young man, um, for all, you know, the, the appearance is a little boy just waiting to be approved of. And I feel that for so many people, um, the child within them gets left behind. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I see that all the time. And when men and women ignore that reality, they 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 try to get crumbs. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I talk about in relationship when we go for less that and we, we then are surprised that we're resentful or depressed or anxious or going elsewhere to get our, our felt needs met. Uh, but if we just boil it down to I wanna be I wanna have approval and I wanna have affection or I wanna just be wanted or needed and that is all of humanity, and it comes in different forms with men and women, but you're absolutely right. And I think if we, we peel away the superficial layers, you know, I don't need my wife to, to be impressed if I make a lot of money or if I'm super tall or if my muscles are big or if I can bench press 600 pounds. That's not what I really want. Mm-hmm. Deep down, what I really want is for her to say, I approve of you, I'm impressed with you, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm with you, and you are sufficient for me. Right. That's what makes me feel really, really good. And my wife wants to be prized. She wants me to prize her and feel that I'm lucky that I have her. Uh, ultimately, that's what she wants more than anything. And there are different, you know, circuitous routes to get there, but then there are the direct routes, whether it's a physical affection or compliments or, you know, other gifts and things like that. Um, but yes, recognizing that for yourself is the first step and being able to communicate it to your partner is the, the next step. Yeah. Um, you know, I always say that we need to place importance upon ourselves, which is not self-importance. You know, self-importance is uh, derived a great deal by insecurity, you know, the ego, uh, where the importance of self is by, you know, investing in you, um, you know, becoming that person of your own self-discovery, what it is you need. As you said, the miscommunication that goes on in relationships, and we're not just talking about spousal relationships, you know, business, sibling, parents, friends, because people don't know how to communicate who they are or what they need. Again, a lot of it is if you speak to what your need is, you're being needy. If you are standing tall in your need and demanding it, you know, you're an egocentric person. It's this political correctness, as you've talked about. I think we're so quick to label people, aren't we? And instead of letting them kind of discover and find their balance and find the whole, um, it you know it, it becomes a, a complete judgment on someone on uh, the label, and then you're stuck with that because that's their perception. And once they've made that perception, it's hard to move it unless they're open to communicate. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're making a lot of sense here. I you know I'm sure your listeners are used to that that notion that, um, that, that that people have to know themselves first, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how do we get known? Well, I, I, I really, you know, as a parent of three children, I have to foster that, 
self-discovery of self. You know, my, I have three adolescents, a 17-year-old girl, a 14-year-old girl, and a 12-year-old boy. And it's so exciting to watch them discover who they are, not just what their talents are, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a, a sport or an art or something like that, but the way that they think, the way that they perceive themselves, the way that they discover their value as human beings. Uh, it, it's such an important job as a parent to lead and, and follow and watch that self-discovery and to validate it for them so that when they develop relationships, they know at least somebody has said, yes, this is a valid way of looking at the world and a valid way of being in relationship. And so then they can seek people who will be those validators. Okay, We, we copy mm-hmm. uh, what, what we had as children, right? Yes. And if we had that self-discovery validated, well, it's going to be easy to have a high standard, right? Hopefully my daughter has the high stand when she starts to date, and that she's only going to date somebody who <laughs> will validate her like that, right? Like her dad did. <laughs> and uh, she won't marry somebody who doesn't give her that eagerly and, and relatively easily, okay? Uh, and, and, and then she'll, obviously if she has those high standards, well, then the man is going to have to become that, and hopefully he's had that from his parents as well to teach, teach him that that's how he has to serve uh, you know, his fellow humankind, but in particular, a woman of his choice. You know, uh, so many people today are divorced, and I admit I'm one. And, uh, you know, my kids have said to me, Mom, you know, kind of, how the hell did you and Dad get together? You know, so ill-suited. And it's like who we were at the time, and I think we were both seekers, and I think we both thought that we found something in each other that was going to validate us, and, you know, we did it the wrong way. Uh, we managed to produce three beautiful children, though. And one of the philosophies I always had was the round table, dinner table. That's when any conversation could be had, um, any subject. And uh, we would address it according to the age, you know, and the topic. Um, and, you know, obviously, as they got into teenage years, you know, all teenagers know everything and parents know nothing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, you know that syndrome. Um uh, but it was always interesting to hear their point of view because if you're willing to learn from your children, they're looking at it in a totally different way to you. Uh, if you're willing to listen to them and then a conversation where, oh, I, didn't, I hadn't seen it from that point of view before and this is mine, they're more likely to seek wisdom from you. But I think when you get that parent, young um, adult or youth, you know, where it's... Uh, um, it becomes a conflict and a fight and, and a who's right in a kind of friction. And that doesn't help anything, does it? No, I'm so glad that I didn't have children when I was younger. I look back at how I was in relationship and how I was in terms of truth, mm-hmm. my view of truth. Uh, and everybody was wrong about everything if they didn't see things from my point of view. <laughs> and hopefully I've, I've you know, become more gray and, and literally and figuratively and softened in, in that regard. Age and, does that and to us. People, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but my goodness, I, I, I used to you know, believe that if you didn't like the same kind of music that I did, that there was something wrong with you. I mean, that was my <laughs> attitude you know, in, in adolescence. And uh, and I felt very strongly about it, of course. And and now, boy, it's a very different ball game. And having children will do that to you. Yeah. Because even though I I have purposely raised my children with the same philosophy, I boy, they are so radically different. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
even though I think, you know, and I've, I've, I've tried to parent them the same way, there's no way you're going to parent three kids exactly the same way, uh, even if you have a pretty strict parenting philosophy, which I think I do. But, uh, yeah, they're so different. They've, they've taught me so many things, particularly about how to be flexible about the way that I think and, and how I communicate that. You see that the, you've just said a very key word. You know, they taught you. And I think what parents yeah. forget is we're custodians of these children. We don't own them, not our property. They're our responsibility for a period of time in their lives where we, we, you know, we water and we nurture and we guide them to be the best that they can be in life. And if we're willing to be taught by them, we become better teachers. And I think there is still this divide where I'm parent, you will do as I say because I've said it. And they dismiss the children and they dismiss the voice. And I think this is where the little boy and the little girls happens, is where nobody's hearing me. Nobody's giving any validation to what I have to say or what I have to think. And I think this is where, they, as adults, they go seeking, looking for, as we said before, that approval for someone to hear them and validate their opinion. If we did it as children, they would grow up a lot more confident, wouldn't they? Absolutely, and that kind of segues into the whole feminist issue because if you're not getting that need met of validation uh, as a young person, well, where are you going to get it? You're going to get it either from crummy relationships with the opposite sex mm-hmm. okay, in the dating world, or you're going to try to get it through your career. Okay, but you you know our careers should not be. This is my personal point of view. Your career should be filling. Um, you know, that huge void of validation. Yeah. Okay. I understand we get partly validated from what we do with our work. Right. Okay. But we don't have, we shouldn't have children so that we can be, feel validated. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't strive to be good at what I do so that I should feel validated. Okay. Work is not supposed to be for that. Um, and so many people are, are, are just starving to death for that kind of interpersonal yes. human, you know, connection and validation. And so they're just going like crazy uh, to, to get it in ways and, and with relationships that just won't feed that. It's impossible. Well, you see people, uh, which happened in my relationship, I was looking for someone to kind of love and validate me for, for what I do and, and have, which wasn't mainstream. Um, and, uh, you know, I married somebody who was, you know, I think a family of eight, um, and, you know, he was looking to kind of be loved and validated because he was, you know, overshadowed. And so you had two needy people that were both looking from each other and unable to give each other because we were both too needy. And so many people get drawn to people like that, don't they? I mean, I take full responsibility for the breakdown in the marriage as well. Um, But we have to be careful of why we choose a partner. So many people think, well, when I'm Mr. and Mrs., it will be all right. Right. I'm laughing because I, I, I know personally and professionally that that's not the case. All relationships are hard work. Yes. Very hard. And they must be sustained. You know, it's almost like a bicycle ride. You know, you can, you, you have to pedal, but you can coast for very short periods of time, right? But that is when you're going uphill, you have to pedal constantly. Mm-hmm. And when you're going downhill, things are easy and you can, you can coast. Marriages are like that. Uh, but most of the time, you do have to pedal. You have to prioritize the other person's needs. You have to prioritize your needs and to be able to speak them uh, so that you can get what you need uh, and not just 
not just what you what you think you need. So um, I believe that that young men and young women are so lost today in terms of what's expected of them mm-hmm. that they are making it up on their own. Yeah. And you mentioned social media at the very beginning. We're, that's one of the superficial places that we're trying to get validated. And you know, many authors have talked about this kind of superficial validation that we get from social media. I'm seeing it over and over again with youth that if I have a certain amount of likes or if somebody looked at my picture, that that means that I'm important. And people are so lost today. And it really, it really focuses on the least common denominator, which is sexual attractiveness, the body, um, the, the socioeconomic status of a person. And those are just very empty vessels of worth that will never satisfy. We, we have to take responsibility and ownership for ourselves, don't we? You know, if we've had an upbringing that didn't fulfill us, then we've got to recognize there's a void. What are we going to do about it? It's not for somebody else to fill. Somebody else can guide you, can give you the tools, can give you the encouragement, can give you the wisdom. But ultimately, it is up to you to participate in your own life and take action that is going to make you feel that, uh, that you're living in a meaningful, purposeful life. And for many people... It, it can be kind of the kiss on the brow, but for some people, it's a cosmic hatchet in the head before they get the message. <laughs> yes, you know, there, there's a, a, a line of psychotherapy uh, called narrative therapy, and the idea is that somebody is authoring your life. Somebody is writing the current chapter, and somebody is preparing the next chapter. And you're either going to own that and become the narrator, and author of your narrative, or you're going to allow others to do that. Mm. <clears throat> and teenagers are notorious for both letting others write their narrative and denying that others are writing their narrative, right? How many teenagers are going to admit that peer pressure uh, is too easy to succumb to, right? It is a, a you know, teenagers will gnash their teeth before they'll say, you know what, I'm really making this, these decisions because I want to be popular, and otherwise I don't think that I would be loved or accepted in the group, which is my primary need. No, most of them say, no, I really want to do this. Well, that's nonsense. You know, so many of them are doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do because they desperately want to be liked and loved and accepted into a group. And it is that point in young adulthood when people start taking the narrative and writing for themselves and rejecting the others as the primary, uh, you know, arbiter of whether they're doing the right thing or going in the right direction. And hopefully they get that early enough that they don't get into significant relationships before that point. Or go off the rails, uh, you know. What's that? Or go off the rails, make a decision that there's no coming back from. Right, and and, and and I don't know if that's, this was your experience, but so many people who marry young are still in that point where they're there to um, please others and, and not get their needs met because they haven't defined what that is mm-hmm. because they're not writing their own narrative yet. And that's it's so important as parents to really encourage their children to be writing their own narrative and exploring that and looking at different options and not just copying what you as parents believe is best for them. You know, I have the fantasy that I know exactly what all three of my children need in life and what they should do. And I know that that's crazy. 
I I have some wisdom and I have some experience and hopefully I can benefit from that. But my kids are not me and I have to separate from them enough to know that they have to go their own way and that they have to write their own narrative. And I'm available to give them wisdom and, you know, reflect and and listen to them and all of that. But my goodness, parents um, who are authoritarian oftentimes just try to put their own template of how life should be onto the child and the child will copy it uh, being dutiful or out of fear and then discover too late often that that's not their narrative. And then they have to rebel and go in a, in a difficult place and it, it creates a huge chasm in relationship. I mean, I know so many people and I have to you know, admit they are kind of from more ethnic backgrounds where they've gone on um, to become a doctor where they hate medicine or they've gone on to you know, become an engineer. They've gone on to become something else because the parents wished it. Um, my children are half Chinese, and you know there was this kind of expectation that someone should become a lawyer or a doctor. Well, in their family, there's only one doctor, um, and everybody was more kind of into the entrepreneurialism, you know, more onto that side of it. Uh, but there still was, well, I want them to do this, and I want them to do that, and that's only because of the status quo. That's where the respectful job was, right? Um, instead of actually looking at the gifts our children have, we can see very, very early what their talents are, can't we? We can mold yeah. them, we can guide them, we can water them. They're going to grow them into whatever it's meant to be. But you can see very, very early what their gifts are. And we really should be nurturing that and not imposing an agenda on them. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, my eldest is a very, very hard worker, and she's been a gymnast for a long time. And I see her you know, just being very successful easily. And yet she has written this narrative. You know, she was the gymnast, and she's going to give it up when she's ready. And it, it has given her such a boost of confidence to know that she is making her own life decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, contrast that with my son, who is 12. And I'll tell you just very briefly, I, I um, had a terrible relationship with my father. He left when I was very young, never saw him again after I was nine. And it, it, it really solidified for me this, this fantasy, this deep desire to have a close relationship with my son and he's going to copy me and he's going to be like me and all this. And I had all these fantasies going into parenthood, right? And they're beautiful fantasies, right? Yes. But they're unrealistic. So I have this son. He's very gifted and talented with sports and baseball is one of the places where, you know, I, I love baseball and he loves baseball. And so, of course, the fantasy just exploded in my head. He's going to be the best baseball player in the world and we're going to, you know, do this together and all that kind of stuff. And I have to really, really be conscious to temper my own expectations of him that I'm not making him do something that he doesn't really want to do himself. So I've had to be very, very cautious with him and say, look, we're only going to go at your pace. You know, if if you're not into this, let me know. You know, and he keeps asking me, so dad, what would happen if I decided that I didn't want to play baseball again? And I, (laughs) he's he's testing me. Do you really mean that I'm the narrative, you know, the narrator and the author of my own narrative? And I have to grip my teeth and say, it would be hard for me, but this is your life and you have to do what you want and what you need. And so you're not living for me. You're living, you know, for your own needs and for your family's needs and for God and all these other things, not me. And so, you know, we, we have to keep working at that so that he knows that this is his life and not mine. And what a great gift to give. You know, um, I've had my own battles with with my children where, you know, they're in conflicts and, of course, the children of divorce, etc. Um, but I look at them today, you know, they're 28, 32, and 34, and they're living their own lives on their own terms. 
and uh, they are, I would say, living from the inside out. You know, they have done the outside in, especially my son, you know, trying to get the approval, um, his uh, natural leadership qualities. And, uh, you know, he teeter-totted for a while, going kind of in a wrong direction. But his consciousness, and he said, even though we weren't speaking at that time, the mama's voice was in there uh, about mm. being true to who you are, about being authentic, about being you know, the integral and even though he found it easy because of that pressure to go that way, eventually it was pulled on the brakes on that. No, this is not me. Why am I doing it? There's a bigger voice mm -hmm. inside. And sometimes we have to let them kind of teeter-totter on those rails, you know, on the edge of the cliff. And trust that we've given them enough knowledge that they'll know how to pull themselves back. But if they do fall... Yeah, we can come and stand there and do our parent parental thing. You stupid idiot, what were you thinking? Um, but at the same time, help pick them back up because that's what parents do. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, you, you, you're touching on something I think really, really important in my work with every patient that I work with, and that's the presumption that we are deeply broken, we are, we are glorious, lovely, and in some ways perfect. But in some ways, we are all broken. We all have foibles. We all have weaknesses. And if we don't accept that and understand that, then we're not going to be resilient when we fail. Okay? I don't know if you have this across the pond uh, or in Canada, but when I was young, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right. Okay? And today, we don't have that. We have sticks and stones are, are really bad, but what will really hurt me, what I can't tolerate is names. Mm -hmm. I can't tolerate if anybody has words or thoughts that are unacceptable. And that's where political correctness comes from. And the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a damnable nonsense because what happens is that we have to control thoughts and words from other people so that we can feel comfortable. Right. That's what political correctness is. Yes. And it's, it's insane because you can't control what an, another person thinks, number one. You can try. But that kind of totalitarian way of, of, of doing the world, I think, I think hopefully we all know that that doesn't really work, okay? Or it, resu it results in control and anger and hostility. So <clears throat> I think it's so important that everybody, whether it's parents or, or people relationships, understand that we're all deeply imperfect. We're going to make mistakes. And uh, if we can tolerate imperfection, then we can be resilient and, and we can make it work. And, I, and again, I think it's teaching them their boundaries, you know, and I think if this is maybe that we weren't taught growing up, um, you know, the boundaries of when to say no and stand tall in that no, when to say yes for the right reasons, you know, knowing how far to push yourself and when you're not willing to go any further um, and how to back out of something and not get pressurized. You know, those are all learning curves that we're going to learn through life. But I think if we can get it in our kids early, where they can learn to trust those instincts. Like my son um, was encouraged to go on this big, huge rope swing um, over this mm. ravine. And uh, he had this instinct beforehand, you know, I shouldn't do it. There's something saying I shouldn't mm. do it. And a guy said, well, what, my girlfriend can do it. What are you, a wuss? Of course, he got up there and did it, lost his footing, ended up rolling down this embankment. And when he woke up in the water in the ravine, his leg was behind him. He'd snapped mm. it in two. And, mm. and it was a great lesson for him, a painful one. 
a very painful one, um, a great lesson to him that those instincts in there, that voice in there, has an intellect of its own, and we must give it credence. We must stop and listen to it. Sometimes it has no reason, but if it's strong enough, there's always a reason that's going to show itself, but just listen to it. Sure. That's so interesting because I I see value to being pushed to do things that we're not comfortable doing, right? Mm-hmm. And yet there's that balance of, okay, the, I, I have to have a solid boundary of places where I can't be pushed, yeah. right? If there's something about safety, obviously we shouldn't be pushed to do something that we, we intuitively know is unsafe, either relationally or, or physically or medically. But then there's the, okay, how are we being pushed to greater heights. I mean, you know, would Thomas Edison have done the amazing things he did? Uh, you know, would some of the great inventors have done things that they, you know, did without being pushed by other people to, to do the uncomfortable things, right? And I know for myself, I've had to be pushed to do uncomfortable things that I wouldn't normally have done in order to achieve. And then I realized, oh, I guess I can do this. I doubted myself. And so there, there is that balance of, okay, pushing people to the uncomfortable and, and that being appropriate. Obviously, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a minimum amount that, that's appropriate and a, and a maximum amount that's, that's too much in terms of using shame. You know, right. you don't want to use shame as the primary motivator. But every once in a while, uh, and when you are dealing with a resilient person, that's not necessarily a terrible thing, Okay. Um, now, who is better at tolerating that? Right. Boys or girls? I believe that naturally, boys have a little better tolerance for that than girls. Um, obviously, there are ex- exceptions on, on both sides, but boy, I remember playing some pretty hyper-competitive games when I was younger that today I would not believe are appropriate for kids. But then we have the politically correct extreme where we can't play tag anymore because, God forbid, somebody not win and they feel bad. Right. That's, that, I think, is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I think running away from discomfort altogether is extremely unhealthy. Yes, I, I agree. It has to be instinctual where, you know, the warning bells are there um, on something pushing you out of your comfort zone. I mean, it's if, you know, if somebody's a basketball player and suddenly you're wanting them to, you know, to take up... Um, you know, cross-country skiing, and it's just not, you know, in in for them. Then no. But if you if they really love sure. the basketball and they really want to take it further, then push them. Let's see how far you can go with this right. until you've had enough, right? But um, that right. I, I think a lot of that encouragement should be inspired because it becomes invitational rather than dictational. Yes, absolutely. You know, the game Truth or Dare is big with middle schoolers, mm-hmm. and you know. You know, 12 to 15, that's kind of the age where truth or dare, that's where they're living out. What are my boundaries? Can I be pushed and how far? And those kids who, you know, they they learn, okay, I guess I'm really susceptible to anything that anybody says. Those kids are in danger. Yes. Okay, because those are the ones who are going to do drugs. They're going to play Russian roulette. They're going to do all kinds of things that they shouldn't do. They're going to be victimized, left, right, and center. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, those are the ones that are not really centered and have that inner voice that says, this is too far from what I believe. I I need to say no. Let's hit on the topic of sex, uh, because I know that, you know, right now there's a a huge profile in in, um, 
in America, um, you know, of misogyny and, and um, sexual abuse and everything else. And, and, you know, women have fought long and hard, you know, to, um, to fight this, this misogynistic platform and uh, to be treated with respect. Um, and, you know, we're seeing people in power that are still on that old band train of, you know, women are just property. How do we teach our young men today when there's so many people in power like that, that this is not okay and totally acceptable? Well, my my primary view comes from, first of all, uh, a religious point of view. I, I believe that, that we, we need to teach our children what we believe, right? And so I, I can't make my kids believe what I believe. I can teach them that, look, I believe that God said that men and women are equal value, and they have unique and complementary traits. So the objective source says that this is the case, and so this is true, okay? Secondly, we need to model, okay? Mm-hmm. I need to be treating my wife as an equal, right? and I, she needs to be treating me as an equal. And yet we don't have to say that equal is same. Right. All right, kids need to understand that equal is not the same, okay? Two plus two equals four, but two plus two is not the same as four, okay? It's equal, but it's not the same. So I have to tell, tell my kids explicitly that your mom has wonderful traits that your dad doesn't have. And, of course, when I say that these days, my kids are like, well, no, duh, of course. <laughs> you know, they know that there are things that mom can do that dad can't do. All right? I'm the absent-minded professor. My wife is the extremely organized person who makes the household run. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm the highfalutin ideas and the person who takes all kinds of crazy risks. Some of them work, some don't. My, my wife is the steady one who makes sure that everything runs smoothly. And those are both really important. Yeah, they're, they're good yin without and yang. I, mm-hmm. Yes, without either, we would really not get very far. Right. Okay? So, but they're, but they're, they're equal contributions that, that, that have equal value, but they're not the same. So, similarly to my kids, you know, all kids ask the question, who's your favorite? Who do you love more? Mm-hmm. And I have to say, well, all three of you, I, you know, and it's not just a, a cliche. You all are very, I love you equally in terms of value. The amount of love that I have for all of you is the same, but I love you in different ways and for different things. Well, then, then obviously if we're modeling that in the home, it's really not a stretch for them right. to be behaving that way in school and in sports. It's just natural for them. Yeah, I mean, I've... So I believe that. I I've, just think modeling is so important. Oh. But there's so many that are brought up without fathers, like yourself. You know, the, who is that person to, to show that the side of it? And, you know, I recently did a show where, you know, it's $150 billion a year for um, sexual exploitation, you know, um, pornography and, and the sex trade, etc. That If that is not a sick epidemic, you know, for people mm-hmm. to be wanting to have sex um, or voyeurism or anything to do with children, young girls, boys, everything, yeah. if we are not recognizing this epidemic there right now, we're in trouble. $150 billion industry a year. Um, is this because, you know, men, because obviously we're primarily looking at men as being, you know, the people after this. What is lacking in their lives? They have to go after children or people against their will, you know, to have sex, to get their power. Where where did this all happen? Where did this massive breakdown happen? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there are a lot of arguments for it being 
from uh, you know trauma themselves. You know, not everybody who is traumatized or abused becomes an abuser. Right. But almost everybody who is an abuser was abused. Mm-hmm. And so I would guess that the majority of people are abusing children, and, and let's call it what it is, it's hor- horrific yeah. abuse, uh, were abused themselves. That does not obviate their guilt. It does not excuse anything. It's disgusting no matter what. But I, I do think that a lot of the abuse is perpetuated by abuse. Right? I think it's a snowball effect. Um, there is some notion that there is a biological error in pedophiles and uh, you know people who struggle with similar things, um, and, and that it might be a genetic quirk. I do not subscribe to that point of view. I'm very skeptical and even cynical about all that kind of research that suggests that any behavior pattern is biologically determined. I generally don't buy that at all, but I know that theory is out there. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that. Um, but then I also think that we live in a culture where there is existential nihilism. Okay, I'll just explain that real fast. We all, uh, who are kind of conscious beings, need to figure out what the purpose of life is. How do I feel good as a human being? Why am I here? What am I doing? Okay, that's the existential question. Uh, <clears throat> and, and you're either to answer that affirmatively with something, whether it's religion or kind of an individual spirituality or something, okay? And if you, if you don't answer that sufficiently, you're going to become either skeptical or cynical about life. And then if you can't kind of get joy and peace and sufficient pleasure from those meaningful things, you're going to go to the next best thing, which is hedonism. Okay? It's the search, the kind of chronic search for pleasure after pleasure after mm-hmm. pleasure. And once you're kind of swimming in that dirty pool, the possibilities almost are endless. And I think that so many people who are struggling with it or, or not struggling with it are really kind of in a sick, twisted hedonism. And it's based on this, this existential nihilism where there, there's no meaning to anything. And there, there's clearly no no uh, lid or no stopping. There's no threshold right. beyond which a person will go. It's, um, it's, it's a new then, form of addiction, right. isn't it? Absolutely it is. Yeah. Yes, because there's a dopaminergic rush. You know, I'm getting away with doing something that's extremely naughty, and that gives me a rush, and I become addicted to that. And whether, well, you know, for me, it's it's sweets. That's Mm -hmm. my that's my drug, and I know I shouldn't do it, and I do it, and I feel good for you know temporarily, and then I feel bad immediately afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I know I shouldn't do it. That's part of the draw. And so I understand at least some of the draw to the naughty type of behaviors which is where I think we have this explosion also in kink or fetish-like mm-hmm. uh, phenomena. Uh, it's not just the dangerous stuff. There's the, the relatively safe you know, kink phenomena going on, too. I think that's some of the draw, too. And again, if you can't have sufficient joy and peace and pleasure from the healthy and the ideal, you're going to go for crumbs. Right. And, and of course, uh, you know, what they say is um, pornography is the trigger. You know, it, it they start off with the pornography and then it doesn't become enough. They want the real thing. Um, and then it becomes so out of control, you know, that addiction, that high, that need. Um, so, you know, they're 
they would love to shut down pornography because, of course, all of this escalated with online porn. Um, and, oh, yes. And this is what has made it uh, really, you know, grow to the extent that it has. Um, again, I think we go back to that responsibility of, of self, of your own choices. Um, as you said, it's so easy for them to say, well, I was abused. Well, if you were abused and you knew the pain that you went through, why are you imposing it on someone else? You are abstaining from taking any responsibility for your own life and doing the work necessary to, to reprogram and you know, change and make the choices for yourself that are better right. not only for your own life, but for the mankind and people around you. We can't escape that responsibility, can we? No, when what you were just doing there was narrative. You were you were creating a narrative of what happened, what it meant, and recognizing that creates a, a crossroads where you can go left or you can go right, mm-hmm. fork in the road, excuse me, you can go left or you can go right. You can succumb or you can overcome. Right. That's a narrative. Yes. And some people are just not inclined to pay attention to their own narrative, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like they're just on a treadmill. They right. don't even recognize that they're walking, right? Okay. Versus the person that's paying attention to their feet and saying, "Oh, I'm going in this direction. I guess I could go in a different direction." So it's the self-awareness, it's that self-consciousness. I think that is the primary variable between people who can overcome their past and people who succumb to their past and just reiterate, you know, and they just capitulate to what happened to them. I mean, there are some people that are drama-based. Um, you know, I, I, I call the CNN effect, take a pimple, make it a volcanic eruption. And there are some people that are just drawn to the drama. Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, they're like a rubber band. You, you stretch and snap right back to that drama. And it just seems to be their makeup. And, it, you know, it's the drowning rat syndrome. You know, my brother and I were trying to save this rat from drowning when we were young. And we kept, put, you know, running and chasing it away from the water. And then the moment we thought we'd saved it back into the water, it went. And there's some people, that's their, that's their journey in life, right? This lifetime, they've got to drown, you know, whatever message it is. Um, but I think the more you try and feed people who are the dramatic, you know, the more they, they soak it up, the attention. So it's sure. at some point, it's got to be, I am not going to feed this. Uh, you're on your own. And if they're yeah. tiltering on the edge of that cliff and they choose to fall over, that was their choice. But, you you know, yes. sometimes you have to play hardball, don't you? Right. And that's what I do in my work. I, I, I hopefully, I lovingly but firmly point out their blind spot, that they are walking through life blindly, just redoing what was done, doing mm-hmm. the same thing over and over again with the same result, which, you know, some people call the definition of insanity. Yes. And to point out that there is another choice. And some people look at me like, uh, you know, I have a second head. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? That there is something different that I could do? Yeah. There, I could escape this? I could change the way that I believe about myself based on, you know, my parents' divorce or being abused or whatever it is? And the answer is a resounding yes. Take the but pen in your you own are, hand. Write your own yeah, chapter. Pain, yeah. <laughs> right, but psycho-spiritual pain often blinds you mm. to your own agency. Yeah. And so I have to be compassionate. And, and so, okay, so you have a blind spot. You know, you can't see your blind spot when you're driving. It's not because you don't want to see it. It's because you're blind to it. And sometimes abuse and other things can, can make you blind to, to, to reality. 
and a different perspective. And I, and I understand that. But So it is our job as loving human beings to point out uh, other people's blind spots when we are invited. Okay? Right. It's when, when we're not invited that people push us away and they think right. that we're obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, you know, take the horse to water, right? It's only when they're thirsty they'll drink. Um, exactly. Or they'll die of thirst. Again, we have to realize we can't save everybody. We can only save those that are willing to save themselves. Yes. Right, so, I mean, a hard one to do. So, um, tell us a little bit about your practice and, and obviously how people can get hold of you, but kind of the some of the things that you do there. Sure. Well, I started the practice about 13, 14 years ago because I don't believe medical model. I was in a private practice with some lovely people. Uh, everybody was being diagnosed and everybody was being referred for meds. And I don't see people being healed right. with that uh, point of view. So I don't label people. I don't think that the labels uh, are helpful. Uh, I think it actually robs people of self-agency. So I started my own practice where we don't do that and we don't recommend meds for children in particular. Uh, I'm also a libertarian when it comes to meds, so if somebody wants to take meds, I don't judge them. I just, you know, privately believe that it's not the best uh, for them, and I'll walk them through that and accept that without a problem. Uh, but I don't think that that's where real healing comes right. from. So uh, some people call it uh, holistic. That that you know that word works for me. I call it more integrative. So I really focus on other options uh, and seeing people as the primary um, agent in their own healing which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So uh, I work with children, adolescents, and adults. Uh, I really wor love working with all those groups because I, I find uh, human development just absolutely fascinating. And we've really grown uh, tremendously in the last five or six years. We have uh, 10 people at one location and then five uh, clinicians at another location about uh, 30 minutes from us. And we, we do marriage therapy. We have a couple of yoga therapists. We do play therapy and like that. And, uh, it's, it's just such a privilege working working with people and, and seeing their hearts and minds open up to uh, what they're capable of. Yeah, I mean, we, we really are awesome human beings. And, you know, the one thing we're doing these shows here on Self-Discovery Radio, um, the amount of people that have had, found their courage and their strength to overcome. And in some of the things they've had to overcome, it's like, could I? you know, faced in that situation, and yet here they are, and they've found mm -hmm. their meaningful purpose in life, and now being of service to humanity, and being grateful for the experience that they had, however horrific it was, and it just shows yeah. the strength and the tenacity that we have, and I think as human beings, we sell ourselves too short, um, because yeah. we are so capable if we're willing to step up to the plate, and be, you know, self-discovery, you know, take that yeah. journey and discover exactly what you're capable of and stop telling yourself that narrative all the time. I can't. You have no idea yeah. what you can do until you, until you choose to do it. That's true. Absolutely. So how do they mm -hmm. find you? Where are you located? Um, do you do anything online? Is it all in an office? Um, what's it's yours? all in my office. Yeah, I, I do uh, phone consultations sometimes too. Um, particularly if people you know can't find a clinician who who works without medication, but uh, I'm I'm uh, pretty close to O'Hare Airport, uh, just outside of Chicago. You can find me www.prpsych.com. Uh, P is in Paul, R is in Robert, and then psych.com. That's my website, and you can also find my parenting book, Desperately Seeking Parents, on Amazon. Excellent. Well, I mean it's. 
it's great to see somebody who is addressing something holistically, you know, because we have become such a drug world, you know, um, kids on Ritalin and, um, you know, it's, oh, they're playing up, they must have ADHD, must have this, they must have that drug, 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 drug. And, uh, yeah. you know, really all they are is kids that are perhaps maybe um, high active or high intelligence and they're just not being stimulated, right? <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got to stop looking at, you know, this Band-Aid of a drug for everything and start looking at, you know, understanding what it is and why it is and uh, open up that communication to what we can do about it. And, um, you know, this, as I said, uh, the drug fits all is is not the answer at all. And um, I think teaching people to communicate, you know, with their inner selves and communicate who they are, why they are, and what they need from life with other people is is key, isn't it? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And recognizing that, that, again, I go back to this, everybody is deeply imperfect, and so your imperfections, you don't have to be ashamed of it. So you can be more self-conscious about it and focus on it and overcome it. And don't focus on the things you can't do, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, if you've got a flaw, mm-hmm. that's part of... What makes you who you are? Concentrate on the things you can do well and either delegate the things that you can't do well to someone else or just accept this I don't do very well, folks, right? (laughs) But this is what I do do well. (laughs) Yes, strength strength focus is so important. As long as you recognize that that, that when you have a weakness, it doesn't define you. Right, exactly. And then I can recognize my weaknesses, either help (laughs) get somebody to help me with it or ignore it, or not, you know, not not try to do things that I can't do. But then I also have strengths, right. and so that's everybody. And and when we recognize that we're everybody else, um, unless you're a narcissist, you're okay with that, and that can be very very helpful. Right. Yeah. Just you know, start embracing all the possibilities that lie within you and who you are, and stop you know sweating that other dictatorial stuff that you know the expectations of life because when we try and live up to those that's where we're going to let ourselves down right exactly well thank you so much for being on air with uh with me here today this has been great and wonderful information and uh your website again is prpsych.com and uh thank you so much for you know choosing to go a different way pick up his book uh desperately seeking parents you can find it on on amazon or, or click right here on the blog and um i thank you so much for your wisdom Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. And to everyone else, remember, if you want to have an awesome life, switch on your awesome switch. And that means you've got to do a little work, a little nourishing and a little um, caring for yourself. And then you'll be the best that you can be and be able to serve humanity in the way that you're meant to. Until then, folks, bye for now.